Amen. Good morning. It's great to be with you all. I know a lot of you, but if you don't know who I am, I grew up here a long time ago and moved away, uh, but it's good to be back. My family and I haven't been back for a couple of years, uh, maybe just a, one or two times since we moved away. We live up in Nebraska now, like they said, um, a town called Norfolk. I'm a, one of the pastors up there at a church, Life Point Church is called. Um, Norfolk's pretty much like Newton, but we have a Menards, and that's about it. So it's kind of a lot of similarities to what I grew up with, but very different from our life used to be. Uh, but God's been really faithful to us, and one of the ways that he was faithful was, as I was thinking this week about our time here, uh, before we moved up there, we were with you guys for about four or five months, and during that time, we experienced a lot of love and care from you guys, and even as we went up there, um, you gave us a financial gift to help us get started, and we still appreciate that very much. And so it's good to be back and share with you and to have the privilege. Um, somebody this morning thought my dad was preaching, and it's still an option if he wants to come up here, but I am ready if he doesn't want to. It looks like he's staying put. Um, we're going to be in the book of Matthew today, chapter 3. So if you want to turn there, um, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that's probably, in this audience, very familiar to everyone. Um, it's the story of John the Baptist, his preaching in the wilderness, and also the baptism of Jesus. This passage talks a great deal about repentance, um, and that's something that we're going to look at today and try to un understand a little bit more in depth. When I think of the word repentance, I think of those big, big billboards on the interstate that tell you to repent, um, or I think of people, like if, I don't know if you've ever been to like a really big city and seen someone standing on the corner with a sign yelling at you to repent. Um, and there's, there are, there, I'm not trying to make fun of either of those things because there's some truth in both of those. But I think the idea of repentance is much deeper than that. And I think uh, repent and repentance, those kind of words, are, are words that Christians use often, but we would have trouble defining them clearly. And so using this passage today, Matthew 3, uh, 1 through 17, I'd like us to kind of get a deeper understanding of repentance, and I think that all of us have something to learn here. I think um, I learned a great deal as I was preparing, and I think that it's something that all of us can glean from. So anyway, I'm going to read from, uh, first of all, just chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, and then we'll talk about that. So if you have a Bible, read along with me. Um, it says this, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Like I said, we've all probably heard of John the Baptist, the crazy-looking guy who ate weird stuff and lived far away. Um, but the text today, it, it really is the most significant story about him in the scriptures. And this guy actually is much more than just a um, unique character in the Bible. He's actually a very big deal. Um, he's spoken out about in the Old Testament many times. Uh, maybe not by name, but actually he is. If you flip back a, like two pages probably in your Bible, uh, Malachi 4, right at the very end of the Old Testament, verses 5 and 6, talks about this. Um, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. This is Malachi 4. Sorry, you don't have to turn there, but Malachi 4, 5 if you want. And it says, He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So right before the end of the Old Testament, as the prophets were, were saying these things, 
uh, right before a 400-year silence, um, there, w- there was this prophecy written um, promising that Elijah the prophet would return in some way. And, and John's name was John, not Elijah, I know. But actually, this was the fulfillment of this prophecy. Um, we see proof of this in Luke chapter 1, when, when the angel came to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. Uh, the angel said that John would go before Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah to make ready the, for, for the Lord a people prepared. And even in today's passage, if you look at verse 3, you will see that he's, talking about, he's talked about by the prophet Isaiah as well that he came to prepare the way for the Messiah's arrival. And Matthew tells us that this was the prophet who was foretold. Um, Even Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 11 talked about this. And he said that John is the Elijah who was to come. So John had been sent into this world for a very special purpose, not just to be the cousin of Jesus or his hype man, getting getting everybody excited about his arrival. It was much more than that. John had been sent with a message um, the, the one that he preached over and over that we see him preach here. Um, and it's actually the same message that Jesus preached when his ministry began as well, a few chapters later. Um, and the, so the scene that we're looking at today just because, is actually kind of a big handoff. If you think of a, of a runner passing a baton to the next runner, it's a handoff between the last Old Testament guy and Jesus, the first New Testament guy. Actually, this, um, this, the, they're kind of bridging the gap between the Old and the New Testament here. So John is essentially the last Old Testament prophet. Um, Anyway, I'm getting kind of ahead of myself, but that's what was going on here with John. And his message, if you notice, go back to verse 2, says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then it says in verse 5, we just read this, that all of Jerusalem and Judea and all these people were coming out to the wilderness to him to be baptized by him in the river and confessing their sins. So he was preaching a message of repentance. And I want to talk about repentance today and what it is. Um, Don't count how many times I'm going to say the word repentance. Um, But I want to think about what it's defined as here in the text and also how it's necessary for all of us as believers. Um, So if you like to take notes, go for it. You don't have to. But if you do, probably this first section would be the, the call to repentance. Okay? John has a very specific message for these people that they repent. And he gives them a very real reason to do so. What is it? That the kingdom of heaven was arriving. Okay, so there's another big word that we throw around, but if I ask 10 of you to define the kingdom of heaven, we'd probably get 10 or more answers of what that is. Um, But the idea is John is announcing that Jesus has arrived, is arriving, that the king was making his entrance into the world. You know, God has always ruled and will always rule, but the king himself was arriving on earth. And he was beginning his reign, which will eventually take place in in fullness. But for that reason, John was calling these people to repent, to do as he was talked about in the Old Testament, to prepare the people for Jesus' arrival. And it says in verse 6 that they were responding to this call. He was getting some, I don't know if you've ever done sales or whatever, but when you get no one responding to you, it's kind of discouraging. Well, here, this is the opposite. People were coming out in droves to do what? To repent, to be baptized and they were confessing their sins. Repentance, at at one level, is confessing sins. It's more than that, but it's definitely that. Um, The word repent, in its originality, it has has kind of two sections to it, okay? One part of the word deals with your mind, with your perceptions, your desires, your your ideas. And the other uh, part of that word involves movement, Okay, so you think, many, many times people talk about repentance as a changing of one's mind. So you, your mind goes, 
is going this way and then changing to this way. Um, and it is true. But, but repentance is much more than changing your mind. You change your mind all the time about what you like or what you don't like. And I was thinking, the first thing that came to my mind when I thought about this, how repentance is more than changing one's mind, is I used to hate olives, okay? But then I married a woman who's half Arab, and now we eat olives all the time. And I love them, okay? My mind changed about olives. But did I repent of not liking them before? No. If that was a sin, a lot of you'd be doomed. But it's not. Um, it's fine. There was a change of mind there, but repentance is more than just deciding something different about something else. Um, as this passage unfolds, I think the definition of repentance will, will unfold too. Um, but this first section shows us that repentance produces a recognition of sin and a confession of that sin. These guys were hearing the message that John brought, and they were responding to it. They were being baptized by him in the river, confessing their sins. In repentance, we do change our mind about sin, just like you change your sports team allegiance or whatever else. But there's more than that. There's actually like a, a kind of sorrow over the sin, a sort of grief over what one has done. Um, I used to wrestle with this a lot in, the, in these very pews, actually. How much grief do I, how sad do I have to be about what I did in order to be forgiven for it? You know, and I don't think that's the idea here. We don't need to have a low-grade fever of guilt all the time in order to be good Christians. Um, but 2 Corinthians 7.10 talks about godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation. So there is a grief that leads to somewhere. It leads to a renouncing of sin and to a changing your mind about that and embracing forgiveness and salvation found in Jesus. And these people weren't just sad about the situation they were in um, and then getting baptized for it. I think they recognized that John had a message. They needed a savior and they recognized that so they were confessing their sins. So when you repent, when we repent, we recognize what our sin is and then we forsake it and we turn from it. And that's the idea here when, um, when John tells us that these folks were repenting. Okay, so I think that you might, in, in addition to saying that repentance might be a change of mind, I've also heard it described as a change of direction. And I think this is very helpful for us understanding what we do about the recognition of sin. Imagine, um, you know, this is vacation time, vacation season, we try to escape the heat, and a lot of people go to Colorado, okay? So imagine you're going to the mountains for a vacation, and you drive up to Salina, and you get on I-70, and you've got the music going, and you've got your fountain drink, and you've got your snacks, and then you see signs, and it says, Junction City, 10 miles. <laughs> or Topeka, it's coming up, okay? You should probably panic, right? See, I still know my Kansas geography, okay? Um, but now, you realize something is wrong, right? So you pull off on the exit. Now, if you just sit there in the heat and beat your steering wheel and just get aggravated, you have not done anything about the wrong direction at which you're going, right? Um, that's not a picture of repentance. But for a person to go left and then go left again, you get back on that highway and you're going the opposite way and you will be on your way there. Is it going to be a longer trip? Yes. Do you have to reap the consequences of more expensive gas to be burned? Yes. But it's a picture of repentance because you're going a different direction. And I think that's, that, that's what John was calling them to. Hey, forsake what you're doing, repent, and get going this way. And so that's the first layer of repentance that we're, that, that's demonstrated here. The, and it's probably something that you're really familiar with, so I'm not teaching you anything new. But that's what is demonstrated here in this text, which we're, which we're looking at today. 
They were responding to him by coming, being baptized, confessing their sins, and trying to move in a different direction. And notice, too, the reason for the repentance. Okay, this is key. The kingdom of heaven was coming. You say, hey, the king is coming. You should probably start living the king's way. We all know that we, get, we start working a little differently when the boss is, is around the corner, right? It's the same kind of, same kind of idea. When the, and when the angel told Mary that, that she was going to have Jesus, you know, she said that he would be the savior. He would save his people from their sins. And these people needed a savior, and John was preparing the way for that savior to arrive. And he does arrive in a few, in a few verses. Okay, but first, I want to look at the next part of the, of the text, okay? Um, look, at, look with me at verse 7. It says, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Okay, so here's what, in this section, here's what we kind of have, um, you could call it the test of repentance. There was many people coming to John to be baptized and to confess their sins, but there was another group of people also who shows up on the scene, um, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And if you've read the New Testament, you probably have heard of these names before. They're actually usually fighting with each other, but in this case, they're united against John because they're both upset by him, okay? Um, and, and, and John calls them a brood of vipers, and I don't know what you feel about snakes, but I don't like them, and it kind of fits here because neither did they, okay? A snake is never a good idea in the Bible, never a, a positive connotation. We think about the Garden of Eden. You think about the snake, the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve. They obviously would have thought of that as well. They would have thought of the uh, snakes in, um, in the wilderness when all the people were bit by them and, and during, the, during the time of Moses. Um, he's associating them with Satan by calling them these things. And Jesus calls them actually the same thing in Matthew 12, 34, later on. Jesus is going to use the same phrase to talk about these same people. So it's very negative connotation. And, you can, and he talks about the fire that's coming toward them. You can picture, I don't know if you've ever seen a, you have probably, um, a bunch, a huge fire. You see animals running out of it, right? You can picture these snakes just like slithering away from this, this coming fire that's coming to them. Um, but we kind of have to ask, if you're just going to look at the text here, you kind of have to ask, why does John get so upset with these people? Because it doesn't say they were holding up signs or protesting or anything else. It says they were coming to see, they were coming to his baptism, okay? So why is he so angry? You probably know from other, re- other passages why this is a big deal. But, but here, um, the text just says they were coming. It doesn't say they were mad or anything else like that. But John can see through what they're doing and what they're saying. And he says to them, who warned you, this is verse 7, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And in verse 9, he says this to them. This is an accusation, okay? Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now in this time, when John was preaching and baptizing in the wilderness um, and telling everyone to repent and everyone to be baptized, 
the ceremony of baptism, the, the rite of baptism, was not something that everybody did. It was reserved for people who wanted to become Jewish, outsiders to enter into Judaism. It's not at all, it was not at all for the children of Israel by birth to, to, to partake in. And so they, they, could have, they would have seen no need for John to tell everybody to do this. And in fact, it could have been offensive to them that John would say, hey, all of you need to be baptized because this is coming. Um, and, and it is true, you know, they, might have, they, were, they were trusting in who they were, okay? And it's true that God said in Genesis 17, other places, that he would create a people for himself, the people of Israel. Uh, but because of this, the Jewish leaders assumed, hey, we're fine. We are Jewish, and that's enough for us to be confident in, in God. Um, so one reason John's baptism was attracting so much attention from these leaders is that um, he was saying it was for everyone. Everyone needed to repent. No one was exempt from this. And, and these guys were, they were there in the right place, but they had no intention of partaking. Um, the fault of the Jewish leaders at its core was a reliance on something else other than, other than God. They were, they were relying on something that could not deliver, and they were presuming that their identity as Jews could put them in right standing with God. They had a misplaced faith that was, that was um, not demonstrating repentance at all. Instead, it was pride in, in who they were, in their heritage, and, and trusting that to save them. And that's why he says to them um, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So here's the test of it. The fruit which comes from repentance is the test of repentance. John responds to them this way in saying, hey, you should be bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance in its essence is kind of a, another way to think of it is like a declaring bankruptcy. Like, hey, I've got nothing to offer here. It throws up its hands and says, I got, it. I got nothing. I need something else. And what these Jewish leaders were doing was the exact opposite of that. Um, and, and John even says to them, hey, he said, hey, in verse 9, basically he's saying, God could make new people out of these rocks to be his people of Israel. He doesn't need you for this. Um, that does, so he, he does have a covenant with his people, but does, doesn't, does not mean that those born into this family are automatically part of that. I think it's so um, easy when you look at bad characters in the Bible or bad groups of people. Like in the Old Testament, when you look at the children of Israel and the way they mess up all the time, it kind of gives you confidence in yourself. Or you look at the, the, the Pharisees and, and you think they're just there for our enjoyment. They're the, the bad guy in the story so we can see the contrast. Um, we, we think, well, how could they miss the Messiah? He's right there in front of them. He's got this message. How could they miss John the Baptist's message that's foretelling the Messiah coming? Um, but really, their presence in the story is for kind of a warning for us, I believe. Because anything that we rely on, anything that we rely on other than the mercy of God for our salvation puts us in the same boat as the Pharisees. It's not who we are or the kind of family we have or the kind of church we have or the kind of place we live in or any kind of anything else, fill in the blank. None of that can put us in right standing with God or keep us in right standing with God. It's only by his grace. It's, it's all the stuff that you're singing about up here. That's the only thing that can, be, that can actually put us in the right place with God or keep us there. Um, the Jewish leaders had unrepentant hearts because they didn't think they needed a savior. And as we saw before, repentance requires a confession and an admission of sin. But it also shows us that the test of repentance in a passage like this is the fruit that it bears. 
Okay, so true repentance, one other characteristic of it is that it will change you. It will keep you from trusting in the wrong thing and make you trust in the right thing. And it, it, and it will send you in a new direction. We, we talked about that idea with the interstate. If you're, if you're changing directions, that's a big change. It's an inward change, of course, but it's going to produce visible fruit. Jesus talks later about this. It's not just a John thing. Jesus, in chapter 7, you can read that later for your homework, um, talks about the same thing, about good fruit coming from the right place. So we see that by this test, re- repentance is made visible. It's a turning from sin, a turning from trust in oneself, from one's own merit or riches or heritage or Christian family or community, status, anything, okay? Even good stuff. It turns from trusting in that and relies solely on God for forgiveness. And when it does that, it will exhibit change, a supernatural change born from a repentant heart, not a, not a to-do list of I gotta, I gotta bear this fruit or I'm not real. It's gonna happen on its own because it's God working in us. Paul himself talks about this. And um, if you need to, you know, wake up your mind a little bit, go with me to Philippians 3. Philippians 3. Um, Paul himself had been a picture of this. He was a Pharisee. He had all the credentials, all the right stuff to say how great he was. Um, and, it, and he talks about that in, in Philippians 3, verse 4. He says, I have reason to put confidence in the flesh more than anybody else. And he gives this long, long list. And then look at Philippians 3, 7. He says this about his um, qualifications as a Hebrew. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered a loss of all things in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's the same thing as they're talking about here. Paul had every reason to be confident in the flesh, but instead he, he counts it all as rubbish in order that he might gain Christ. The righteousness that's not from doing stuff or being a certain person, but that is from God that depends on faith. And I don't think, I, I, would, be, I would be stupid to think that y'all would say, oh, if you, you have to do a lot of good things and then you'll be saved. Of course not. But I think the idea of having to perform or having to have a certain list of credentials in order to be a real um, great person or putting our trust in that stuff instead of what God has done for us, that's a very real possibility for all of us. I know it is for me. The idea of, of what functionally is your Savior all the time. But the truth is no spiritual status or amount of good stuff will ever make us exempt from the need to repent. And that's the idea here. It's all about the heart. And the heart of what John was saying was this, that God calls us to stop relying on anything else, good stuff or bad stuff, and trust in him alone for salvation. That's what the Jewish leaders were getting wrong, and that's what we get wrong too, okay? Um, the last part I want to focus today on today, we're not done, don't worry, stop, don't think that. We're not done. This is just getting good because... Um, the, the last part I want to focus on is when in Jesus coming onto the scene of this story. Because you could easily have a message that I just, all the stuff I just talked about, that could be our, our thing, and we pray and go home, and that was really good. But I think it's so interesting that at the same story, the same time, Jesus comes onto the scene, and he gets baptized. Um, so look with me in verse 13. We're going we're gonna to talk last about 13 to 17 and how this kind of fits together. 
Verse 13 says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Okay, so first of all, have you ever thought before right now, why did Jesus need to be baptized? I don't think I, I think we all just assume that's a thing, that's a story. The dove comes down, it's part of the story. But why would Jesus need to be doing this? If John came preaching this baptism, and specifically it says in verse 11, a baptism for repentance, then why would Jesus walk up and need to, or feel the need to be baptized as well? Because we would all agree that he was sinless perfect. He has no sin that he needs to repent of, so why would he need to be baptized? And that's a question that most of us don't think about and kind of assume that it's just a thing in scripture. But I think when we do think about this, the answer kind of helps us understand even more um, the, what Jesus was doing, but also the, this idea of repentance is made even clearer, kind of zoom out and see an even bigger um, definition of this word, okay? I, I would go so far as to say that Jesus serves as our example of repentance, okay? So hear me out. That's kind of weird to say. But when Jesus comes to be baptized in verse 13, John the Baptist himself recognizes that this is kind of backwards because John says, I need to be baptized by you. I shouldn't even be, you know, dealing with this. And then you're coming to me wanting to be baptized. I should be baptized with your baptism, not you with mine. But Jesus insists upon this. And, and John understands that Jesus is who he says he is, that he's the king, he's the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But Jesus says to him, um, when John tries to prevent this, Jesus says to him in verse 15, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And that, that sentence is enough for John to go through with it, okay? So I think it's very significant that Jesus said that. So let's think about this for a second, okay? Um, for... For us, as sinners, repentance means a turning, like I said, from something toward the things of God. You're forsaking the lesser things and the sinful things and moving towards God, okay, in order to prioritize what he, what he prioritizes, to live in his way. It's a commitment to live in God's design. Jesus, who had no sin, he didn't need to turn at all, but he still made a commitment to follow God on this earth. Remember that when Jesus the son became a man he was he was living on this world as we should be living as we should have lived and for him repenting did not involve a turning from sin but it did involve a submission to live in god's way in this world wholeheartedly devoted to him jesus fulfilled this role as the son the obedient son of god by being baptized and we see in, this, in these verses that God the Father was pleased with this. He even announces it in an audible voice that everybody can hear. He said he's pleased with his son. He sees him as fit to serve him on the earth. And so in this way, Jesus is this fulfillment of righteousness that he talked about with John. He's the fulfillment of God's work in the world. He's the, um, the final goal of, of all that God had planned to do in saving his people. And so his baptism, this, this moment here, in the, in the Jordan River, foreshadows the cross that is coming, and it kind of kicks off Jesus' ministry. 
And so, so if we see this idea, this definition of repentance kind of expand even a little bit more, um, when, we, when, we, when we kind of zoom out a little bit, we see that at its core, repentance is a commitment to live a life centered on God and devoted to his ways. If we go back to our first idea of repentance, the, um, the idea of confessing sin and stuff, I think we can be um, tempted to think it's just simply only uh, a one-time thing. You know, you think about like those big tents and the revival and someone coming forward and I repented, done. Or you think of other religions where they go and confess to a person all their sins and that's a, the idea of repentance. And th- both of those things kind of fall short. Um, repentance essentially means to be, become a disciple, to become a follower. That's what John was calling these people to do. You're walking this way, God's going that way, turn and, walk, and go this direction with him. Jesus, though he had no sin, didn't need to turn from anything, but he still committed himself to follow what God wanted him to do on this earth. And so just like those who heard the message, the message of John the Baptist, we are faced with the reality that the kingdom of God has come, and it has come in the person of Jesus Christ. Aligning oneself with this kingdom is the only way uh, to have eternal life, and it's only found in repentance. A turning from allegiance to one's own thoughts and desires and passions and goals, qualifications, or whatever else, and instead turning to God, placing one's life under his authority. No good thing that we have can merit that authority, or merit that, that, um, that uh, status with God. We must be people who allow him to change us from the inside. Um, and all this is possible, like we said, because Jesus, our Savior, filled to the full that right requirement of God. That's what he told John he was doing. And he identified himself with us in doing that. These people that he came to save, he, he, we talk about how Jesus became one of us. What a better picture of him also being baptized, walking on this earth. He's just going to go out and be tempted after this and not sin under that temptation. He's identifying himself with his people in those he came to save. He's willing to be counted as a sinner, although he was not a sinner. And this is in order to fulfill the Father's ultimate saving work, which is saving us. And so at this moment in the River Jordan, he was righteous, but he took his place with those who were not. And then he continued to live obediently to be that second Adam we talk about in Scripture who obeyed perfectly as the first Adam did not. And so I think um, it's easy to walk away from something like this, a passage like this, and see the word like repentance and think, oh, that's, for, that's what I did when I was seven, or that's what I did when I was 27, or that's what those people need to do who don't follow God. But when we look at the idea of repentance in this passage, it's much more than a one-time admission of sin. It's much more than a, than a beating up oneself for, for what sin has been done. Instead, it's, it's, an, it's a turning from sin and aligning oneself with God and what he's done. And so some people, yeah, some of you in this room even, probably need to see repentance as that moment where you are heading towards Topeka and need to turn around completely. And for others of us, it's more of a daily recalibration of our goals, our thoughts, our desires, our confidence, and to live a repentant way. I don't think that um, repentance is something that you did years ago and you never have to do again. It's for those A-team saints that are in this room. 
as, just as much as it is for someone who came in here for the first time today and has never heard about Jesus and needs to repent of his or her sin. It's a daily choice, a daily, um, like I said, recalibration of our desires and things like that and bringing them under the authority of God. I think that's what John was calling these people to do. That's what he was calling those religious leaders who thought they had it all together to do. And it's what was demonstrated so perfectly in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray, because I think that's the best way to ask to get, for God to impress this upon us and help us remember it after we go from here and to keep it going throughout the week. Heavenly Father, um, the more that we study your word, the more we can see um, that it is indeed inspired and written by you. We thank you for being so gracious to give us your written word to study, to read together. Thank you for this, this gathering of believers today who desires to know you better and follow you better. I pray for a, a spirit of repentance to be on us, Lord, that those who maybe don't know you at all would need to turn from sin and, and, and just experience forgiveness and enjoy that forgiveness that you offer and the new life in Jesus Christ. For others of us, Lord, it's, a, it's a, an adjustment of our, our thoughts and our allegiances and our, even our confidence and our sense of, of worth, Lord, and, and recognizing that none of those things will um, give us what we need with you, Lord. It's only by your grace and your mercy. And we thank you so much for Jesus Christ and the way that his example to us on the earth showed that um, he was your plan for salvation. We thank you for, that he came, that he lived among us, that he was perfect, that he um, did not sin when tempted. We thank you for the way that he demonstrated your love to those, those around him. We thank you for his ultimate sacrifice on the cross that paid for our sins. And we thank you that he's alive today and that we can live with hope because of that. And I ask that we would go from here with, uh, with repentant hearts, that, that we would desire to seek and understand the direction that you, are, that you are taking us, and that we would walk willingly in that same way. And I pray that you would do this by your Holy Spirit, and um, just keep us, keep us close to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.